Amen. So good. Getting a little glimpse of what a big week it is uh, for us here at Beach Point and really for the church. Just singing through those words and hearing uh, that song is going to be an awesome week and uh, excited for you to join us. And in many ways, uh, today, this morning, is going to set up what we're going to experience in this this next week. Uh, We have been going through this series called Miraculous, and, and today we want to look at the final miracle of the series that we're going through. So can I invite you to turn to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, page 1076 in the Bibles that are in front of you. And uh, we started off uh, four weeks ago uh, thinking about this, that there are 34 miracles that uh, are written about in Jesus' life. Uh, there are many more, at least that the writers uh, attest to, but that they didn't include. But uh, uh, 34 unique miracles that were given. And uh, of those, uh, there are seven miracles that John writes about. He calls them signs, and we'll talk about that in a second. But four of them are unique in the book of John. And we've been looking at those four, four unique miracles. And so today we're going to look at the seventh sign. There are seven in the book of John, four unique. The last one is the seventh sign. It's the, it's the fourth uh, unique one. That's what we're going to look at today. But the idea of the word sign is important because in some ways what John's been inviting us to do is do two things. To one, to see the miracle, but to then try to understand what the, the miracle is pointing to. What's the sign that it's pointing to? Uh, what is it that he wants us to see? And so in each miracle, we'll not only see in what, but why and what's behind it. And so we want to see that uh, 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 today in this last one. Now, to, to really understand this last one, though, you have to get the right perspective. Perspective is going to be really, really important. So um, I, I love to go to hockey games. I, I, uh, my dad used to take me when I was a little kid and growing up, and I started playing hockey uh, uh, about 20 years ago. So I played for a while. When I go to games, I love to sit in one of two places. I love to sit up high. And I know that seems kind of like, why would you want to do that? You know, we call them the nosebleeder seats and all those kinds of things. But if you look at that photo, you can see in some ways that there's a perspective you get on a, on a game like hockey by sitting up high where you can actually see and understand the whole game. You can see the way that plays are developing. In fact, I'll go to games sometimes and depending on what team I'm playing on, if I'm playing uh, uh, like a forward position or a defense position, I'll, I'll track a guy and I'll watch how that player moves up and down the ice and how they get involved in plays. And you get a perspective that you can't get down low. There's, there's something about getting up and away and getting a, a, a high perspective. But I also love, I love to sit up close. I love going to games and getting those seats that are right up on the glass. And uh, I've had a, uh, some, some good friendships where I've been able to work it out, where I've, I've been able to sit like right on the glass glass and it was really fun when my boys were growing up taking them to a game where we could sit there they could kind of breathe on the glass and when you know a player come by they're smacking the glass and they're yelling things that you would never yell if there wasn't a giant piece of plexiglass between us so you know Corey Perry you're a bum you know all these kinds of things that we would say if if they were on your team you would love that they were that kind of player but because they're on the other team you get to yell these things and do all this stuff so I don't know if I was a good dad or bad dad depending on the kind of dad you are I guess but that was like the a really fun thing that we would, we would do. But when you are up close and you are, are seeing and experiencing it, 
you experience the speed of the game. You experience the power of the game. You experience the skill of the game in a way that you can't get up close. There is something about watching uh, these athletes and seeing how big and fast they are and watching all the things that they do with their hands and then realizing they're doing that while skating on ice. And you're just like, it blows your mind to see it. And so when you're there up close, you experience, you feel the power of the event. Perspective makes all the difference. And, and for us, what we're going to see today in this miracle is what many of us experience is that sometimes we're going through something and, and we are up close to it. And so we are feeling the power of what it is we're going through. We feel the speed and we feel the intensity and there's something about it. But because we're so close to it, we, we miss some of the angles. We miss some of the bigger things that are going on because all we can see is what we feel up close. But we're going to see in this miracle today, though, is that sometimes you have to kind of get a different perspective. You need to be able to, to kind of get a heavenly perspective to see that there's something bigger going on than what you are, are, are experiencing. And for Mary and Martha, they're up close to it. And we're going to feel a lot of the tension that they are feeling in this uh, situation when they lose their brother Lazarus. When Lazarus dies, um, John is walking us through this miracle in such a way that, that uh, we get a chance to feel what it feels like to lose someone or something really important. You're going to feel the depth of this and feel the disappointment in it. And so in some ways, uh, Lazarus becomes for John this, this uh, a symbol of, of what it means to lose someone or something that's really important to us. It symbolizes all those things. But if we're going to really see what this miracle is about, we're going to have to not only enter in close and feel the pain, but then try to understand the bigger perspective of what it is that Jesus is trying to show us. And I think he's after something pretty big. Here's our big idea, uh, that Jesus wants to build in us miraculous faith. He wants to build in us miraculous faith. Faith that moves mountains. Faith that part sees faith that is not afraid to take on giants and faith, as we will see in, in the miracle today, that is, is even bold enough to rob a grave. And so we've been going through this series and as we close this out today and, and really as we prepare our hearts for, for this holy week, we, we want to be asking God to, to, Im, to increase our faith to give us miraculous faith, to give us daring faith, to be the kinds of people that we really can trust him, even in our biggest disappointments, even in our biggest challenges. Lord, we want to be able to say, I, I, I believe, I trust you, even though I can't quite see what it is that you're doing. And so let's begin in verse 1. Now, now this passage is it's a, it's a kind of long story, but I think it's engaging. I'm going to break it into two halves, and I'm going to show you two things, and then I'm going to ask you to consider two ways that you can respond. And so let's begin with verse 1. It says this, Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and he was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her older sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. And so the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, the sickness, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. And so when he heard that Lazarus was sick, 
he stayed where he was for two more days. And then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you and yet you're going back? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, but they see, for they see this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. And after he said this, he went on to tell them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. And Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought that he only meant natural sleep. And so then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. And when Mary heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him. But Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's stop there for a minute and pause and, and let's make a, an observation. I think that's helpful for us. The first thing I want us to see is this, is that Jesus meets us in our disappointment. Jesus meets us in our disappointment. Now, it's hard because in some ways, as you've been reading this first part of the story, it seems as if Jesus is causing some of the disappointment. Uh, but let's look deeper into this and understand what it means for Jesus to meet us in this. Key to this part of the story that we're starting to see already is that this family is really important to Jesus. And so there are other stories that lead up to this. Mary and Martha and Lazarus were, were uh, very close to Jesus. Jesus loved them. And we see this over and over again in the passage. In fact, this was kind of like his home away from home when he could be in this area. He always stayed at their home in Bethany. This was a very important family to him. And so we see this. Notice the way that they appealed to Jesus. They did not say, hey, Jesus, can you come? They simply said this, Jesus, the one you love is sick. The, the feeling was Jesus cared so much about Lazarus. If he heard he was sick, he would drop everything and he would run to this. Maybe how you might feel if you heard a, a good friend or a family member was, was sick or in trouble and you would say, I, we have to get on the next plane to wherever it is. I mean, I, the feeling is Jesus would hear these words. He'd find a white horse. He'd travel across the desert. He'd get there as fast as he could. But did you notice the response of Jesus? Did you catch it? it? John again and again says how much Jesus loves this family. And then it says this, he decided to stay two days longer. He waited. He allowed the suffering to continue and to magnify. Now, some, it, it seems to make sense that by the time that the, the messenger had gotten to Jesus, that Lazarus probably was already dead and Jesus knew this. But regardless, Jesus doesn't rush. He waits intentionally, two extra days. Now, here's where we need perspective because up close, this makes us really uncomfortable. Why are you doing this? This does not seem like it's helping at all. With just a word we've seen in other stories, if you would have heard this, you could have sent word and you could have healed Lazarus. 
Everything up close, the intensity of the up closeness of the miracle feels like, Jesus, you are not coming uh, and meeting us in our disappointment. And you hear it even in the words of Martha, if only you had been here. If only you had been there. Have you ever wanted to say that to Jesus? Have you ever been willing to say that? If only you had showed up. If only you would have been here, I wouldn't have lost my job. I, I, I wouldn't have, this relationship wouldn't have failed. This sickness would not have ended this way. Have you ever been in that position where in your heart you wanted to have the courage to say to Jesus, you, you, didn't, you didn't show up on time. You didn't get here on time. And Martha walks us into this very, very tense, tense situation, this tense moment. And it doesn't seem as if Jesus meets us in our disappointment, but part of that is because our only perspective as we enter into it is what we feel down on this ground level. But if we pull ourselves back, we listen to Jesus' words, we see once again what's happening. That, that oftentimes we want Jesus to move on our terms. We want him to do it our way. We ask him, we, we have an expectation of how he's supposed to fix the problem. And every miracle we've, we've seen this, Jesus continues to work on his own terms. He continues to do things as he knows best. And so in this, we start to see once again that Jesus does want to make Lazarus well, but he wants to do it in his own unique way. In fact, in some ways, what we see is the limitations of our imagination. In their imagination, they can only envision the the solution coming one way. But Jesus is about to do something that is far beyond anything they could imagine. Some of you may have, have read before a, a devotional called uh, My Utmost for His Highest. It was written by a man named Oswald Chambers. And Oswald Chambers, uh, he writes this. He says, sometimes it looks like God is missing the mark because we're too short-sighted to see what he's aiming for. These are good words. Sometimes we, are, we think God is aiming here and he's missed it all together and not, we just do not understand that God is shooting at something far bigger. And if we look back at Jesus' words, despite the conditions, despite the circumstances of what's going on, if we listen to Jesus' words, if we, if we pull back and get a heavenly perspective, we see that he is doing something bigger. And in fact, we see this way that he's after this miraculous faith he wants them to have. On the ground level, disappointment, but the heavenly perspective, Jesus is about to reveal his glory. He's about to strengthen their faith. Notice how the conversation continues in verse 22. It says, he says, but I know that even now, she says, but I know that even now God will give you whatever you asked. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha answered, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she replied. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God who has come into the world. And after she had said this, She went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and he's asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet entered the village, but he was still at the place where Martha had met him. 
And when the Jews who had been with Mary in the house comforting her, notice how quickly she got up and went out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. Jesus wept. And then the Jews said, See how he loved them. But some of them asked, or some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord said Martha, the sister of the dead man, By this time there's a bad odor, for he has been in there for four days. And then Jesus said, did I not tell, tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And so they took away the stone and Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said that for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped in strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Here's the second thing I want us to see this morning from the passage, and we'll talk about some responses. The second thing is this, is that it's not over until God says it's over. It's not over until God, God says it's over. Now, Martha has this moment, again, where we see that she, she reveals that Jesus is the kind of person that you can bring your if-only moments to. Her and Mary both come and say, have this comfort that they can say to Jesus, if only you had been there. But notice in Martha, there's a moment of confession. Even now, she says, I know God will give you whatever you ask. And this is the, this is the beginning of, a, of a, a significant confession that she's about to make. And so she begins to make this confession. I know, I, I trust you. And Jesus says to her, uh, your, your brother will rise. And, and she's thinking later. She's thinking about this life that will come later. And she goes, says, I know in the resurrection he will rise. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the life. I'm, the, I'm who you find life in. It, it's not this thing that is going to come later. It's, it's now, it's in me, it's, it's wherever I am. Friends, this life, this abundant life, this eternal life that you and I are all searching for, it's not this force, not this energy, it's not this thing. It is in Jesus. It has always been in Jesus. And Jesus reveals this, uh, that I am the resurrection life. The one who believes in me will never die. And he asked her, do you believe this? Now, it's interesting as we walk into the burial, think about this in this moment, that the, the burial, uh, the way it would have happened is when, when you died in the first century, they, they had to take care of your body right away uh, because of the climate, because all the, uh, your body begins to decompose. And so it's very often that you would be wrapped in uh, straps of linen, you would have these uh, spices and ointments and all these different things that place. Now we see there was a tomb that they placed him in. There was a sto stone that was rolled in front of that tomb. And, and the mourning period would take place for about a week. The first three days were days of weeping. 
Now, it's interesting that we see, even though that time has passed as Jesus enters in, notice the way that he feels with them. Now, this is not for show. He's not trying to, to portray anything. He, he cares about them so much. It says that he is deeply moved. He is troubled. He weeps. All these different emotions that Jesus has. And we see once again how amazing it is that God has done something. Not only has Jesus entered the world so that we might know God, he has entered this world that he might understand our pain and he feels uh, their pain with them. He is deeply moved by this. But watch what happens as as this all begins to take place. they, They have him buried. They put him away. And Jesus meets them. And you start to see that he's meeting them and they're disappointed. But he's about to show something that it's not over until God says it, it's over. Now, did you catch this? This is the fourth day. And this is, this is significant. John tells us this, uh, uh, the fourth day, because he wants you to, to know that Lazarus is really, really dead. I mean, dead so much that, did you notice what they're saying? Don't open the cave. If you open up the tomb, you're going to smell him. Okay, so there was this Jewish folklore that believed that the spirit of the body would hang around the body for three days. But by the fourth day, the odor would get so bad that even the spirit would take off and say, forget it, this isn't going to work. So Jesus waited. And I don't know if you noticed, on the second half, even Martha is described as the sister of the dead man, of the dead brother. Uh, John is going out of his way to make sure you know that Lazarus is really, really dead. This isn't like uh, Princess Bride mostly dead or any of that kind of, I mean, this is, he is, this is really, really dead. And he does the unimaginable. Move the stone. Jesus, don't move the stone. Do you know the smell that's going to come out of there? It's just going to, we already are grieving, and then we're just going to be overtaken. You're going to make this so much more difficult. And as we've seen in each of the miracles, remember there's this moment of obedience, this moment of faith, and Jesus wants to know, do you want to see the miracle or not? And they move the stone. They move the stone, and then Jesus doubles up. Talk about the impossible. He calls into the tomb, Lazarus, come out. And here comes, the, here comes the body. Now, I don't know what you envision in your head, what mummy movies you've watched or however you, you see it. You know, it, he's not a mummy, okay? He is alive again. So, but here's what's interesting. Uh, typically, you know, you're, you're going to be bound together, your feet, you're kind of bandaged all the way up. So he's kind of probably hopping out, coming out to them. And you can see why they're saying, okay, this is getting silly. Take off the grave clothes. Let him go. And I don't know what it would have been. Try to imagine yourself being there. Okay? You're, you're a distant cousin. You've been there. Your family traveled to help mourn. And you're there, and you're watching this all take place. And you watched this bandaged body come out. This is your cousin, Lazarus. You see him come out of this grave. I mean, you're like, you're like there's, there's a little bit of fear. There's a little bit of wonder. There's a lot of like, what in the world? Like you're trying to put your head around this. And this miracle is so significant. Now you see, in some ways, I think what a lot of us think, Jesus, if you would just do like a crazy miracle, everyone would believe in you. Now we do see a number of people put their faith in him. But the crazy thing is, Jesus' enemies, they double down as well. They decide, we had got to get rid of this guy. 
This is not, this did not help our cause at all. And so as you read into the next chapter, you see that they make a decision not only to kill Jesus, but to kill Lazarus as well, because people are coming to see what has happened. This is an incredible moment. And they believed, and they're starting to see that the kingdom of God is at hand and that nothing, 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 not even death is able to stop it. I love the words of Mark Batterson. He writes on this miracle. He says that God raises dreams from the dead. He resurrects dead relationships. And no matter what part of your personality has died at the hands of sin or suffering or Satan himself, the grave robber came to give your life back. No one had laughed or smiled since the day Lazarus was laid to rest. And when he walked out of the tomb, no one could stop. The seventh miracle is a snapshot of who Jesus is and what Jesus does. The grave robber steals back what the enemy has stolen, and then he gives it back to us with interest. With Jesus, there is always hope. There is always hope. We have seen in miracle after miracle after miracle that with Jesus, there is always hope. Hope Biblical hope is so different from optimism. Optimism is about a positive outlook in your trouble. But hope says that something else is at work. I I think Martin Luther King said it the best. He said this. He said, optimism is belief in progress. Optimism is a belief that circumstances are going to get better. Optimism fixes its eyes on what is seen and therefore is on pretty shaky ground. Therefore, it can get disillusioned and people can get burned out because outwardly we are wasting away. Hope, he said, is the conviction that there is another reality, that there is another kingdom, and that kingdom exists and has existed through all eternity, and it is doing very, very well right now, and it will prevail. Now that is hope. That is what we believe. That is the hope that we have. And, and as I, I think through this series, I've been, uh, the last couple of weeks, I've been praying through this, thinking about this series, like, why do this series? Is it just because these stories are, are so much fun to look at? There's just such good stories. Uh, there, is there something bigger? Is there something important about this time for us, Beach Point? Is it for, for you, for me? And I've been praying, I've been praying that God would increase my faith and it's, uh, I don't know if it's ironic or what it is, but it's, it's fascinating to me. We're doing a series called Miraculous, and right now our family is going through a, a, a moment where we have a health concern that we don't have any control over. We don't know what to do, and all the counseling that I've done for other people, I have to kind of turn back on myself. All the things that I say, I have to try to now believe for myself uh, as we're dealing with a, a, a threatening situation. And in this moment, I'm praying, God, increase my faith. And I'm praying for miracles, and I'm, and, I'm, and I'm also realizing in some ways, I only see it from here, Lord. In some ways, I don't see the bigger thing that you're doing. And so I'm trying to, in some, say, in some sense, say, Lord, it's well with my soul. I trust you in all of this. But I don't know if you've noticed something in the story, and one of the things that happens, if we're going to be people of miraculous faith, is that this story, th- there's nothing safe about this story. Go to Judea. Jesus, don't go to Judea. They'll kill you there. 
he, he decides not to play it safe. The disciples, we should go with them. Let's go and die with them. They decide not to play it safe. Show up late when everybody thought you'd be there days earlier. It's not the safe way to do it. Roll back a stone from a decomposing body and call that body out. It's not the safe play. And so can I leave us with with one last thing to think about? Miraculous faith refuses to play it safe. Miraculous faith refuses to play it safe. I, I think John has been leading us somewhere all along this way. Now at this last sign, John has decided that Jesus was committed to go to the cross and nothing was going to hold him back. Jesus was committed. The path that he was going to take was through the cross and that is the path you and I must take as well. He had set his face toward it. Nothing would keep him. He denied himself, took up his cross and he calls us now to follow him in the same way. I wonder for us if there are any things in our life that we would be willing to say with that kind of trust and faith, that kind of lack of safety to say, Lord, I'm willing to surrender it to you. I'm willing for it even to die and be buried. And if it's raised up, it's raised up and you get all the glory and you get all the, all the power. One writer says it this way. He says, it takes courage to end an unhealthy dating relationship but you won't find Mr. Right as long as you're dating Mr. Wrong. It takes courage to quit a job, but it might be the difference between making a living and making a life. It takes courage to change majors, but it's, the, it's better to fail at something you love than succeed at something you hate. Maybe you need to bury the relationship, bury the job, or bury the major. Then you need to wait for Jesus to show up. Jesus refused to play it safe because when you play it safe, you forfeit the miracle. There's no other way of glory than through the cross. And this week we, we remember that. Today is uh, Palm Sunday. Today is the day we, we remember that Jesus, he entered in on this day. And they, they uh, announced him as king and they were excited for him as king and he rode in victoriously. They, they, they were chanting for him. Hosanna, here comes our king. Here comes our king. He's going to save us. They're praising him for this, but by Friday, they were crying out, crucify him. And Jesus was willing to take all that on himself. He was willing to be falsely accused. He was willing to be whipped and beaten, to have his beard pulled out, to have all those things happen to him. Because he wasn't going to play it safe. He had had decided to give his life for ours. The physical pain, I think many of us look at and think, I don't even know how you go through that. But most of us don't really appreciate the bigger thing that was happening. The fact is that when Jesus went to the cross, he wasn't just being tortured. In a physical sense, he was taking your sin and my sin, our sin upon himself. The Bible says it this way, what he was doing. He was demonstrating to you that the depth of God's love. This is how God showed his love among us, John writes later in in one of his letters, that he sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. 
Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Even when we didn't love God, when we rebelled God, he sent his son in the world to take our place. That idea of being an atoning sacrifice means the penalty that I should play, take, he took my place. What we remember this week, what we remember every week when we come in, is that Jesus entered into this world. He went to that cross and he took our place. He received our punishment and by his wounds, we are healed. He refused to play it safe, to play it for himself. He gave his life for ours. And so this is why he asks you, and this is why John has been asking you, this whole, this whole work has been leading you to this question. Do you believe? Do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus, that he is the son of God, that he's come for you, that you have life in him? Do you believe, as he asked uh, Martha, he, he said this, remember his, his words, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And the one who's able to rob the grave is not afraid to ask you, do you believe? Are you willing to trust me? Are you willing to follow me? Will you have faith? Martha replied, and it's one of the most amazing replies. We're going to see her, her reply today, and next week we're going to see another woman's uh, confession. But it's amazing. Listen to her words. I believe. I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. This yes changed her life. It changed her eternity. And this yes will change your life. It will change your eternity. Do you believe? All this series, what we've been seeing and what we're leading into this next week is that Jesus, he's always got one more move. I I was listening to a story and we'll close our series up with this. I I thought it was such an interesting story that I think ties so well into where we've been this week. But the the idea was this, that uh, the the story was this, that these two men had gone to this art gallery and they were uh, working their way through and they came across this one painting of two men playing chess together. And they were struck by it. And, and one of the friends was particularly struck by it because he was an international chess champion. And so they were looking at this painting. And in the painting, there's two men. One is an ordinary man. And the other one, though, it's, it's as if the artist painted him. It, there's kind of a, a darkness to him, a, an, an evilness, maybe even Satan himself. The ordinary man is down to one last piece, his king. And, and the title of the painting is Checkmate. And so they're looking at the painting, and the, the guy that's the chess champion, he, you can see he's just like, he's looking at it, and he's, he's reading the board, and he's trying, to, he's trying to get into the painting, and he realizes that the artist is, there's something to the painting that he's not sure what it is. And so his friend says, what, you know, what's the deal? Let's move on. And he goes, no, 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 I can't, I, I can't get away from this board. There's something to this. I gotta, and so his friend goes, I'm going to walk around, and I'll come back. And so he's looking, he's looking at the board, and he's, moving his hand and his head and he's kind of figuring all the moves that are still to go. 
And his friend comes back and he says to him, he's like, are you ready? He goes, we've got to find the artist. And he's like, why? He goes, because the painting's all wrong. Either the painting is wrong or the title is wrong. The title of the painting is checkmate. But the king still has one more move. And I think about that story and I think, oh, that is so where we have been during this series. You're, this, we come across this young couple. They run out of wine. They're going to experience shame. They're going to experience uh, uh, this, this rough start to their, their new beginning. There's no more wine. There's no more joy until Jesus noticed six water pots. and He turns those water pots into the most delicious uh, wine they've ever tasted. And in that moment, a few servants and their disciples get a glimpse that the kingdom of God is at hand. Why? Because the king still has one more move. We see a, a man who's been crippled for almost 40 years. He can't get up, let alone walk towards this water that he, he believes through superstition that can heal him. And so he thinks, if I can't get up, how am I ever going to get into the water and, and, and find healing? And then Jesus shows up one day and asks him, do you want to get well? And that man is not only standing, but he's skipping and jumping in heaven now. Why? Because the king still has one more move. We, we see a, a young man who's blind since birth and thinking to himself, what did I do to deserve this? What did my parents do to cause this? And then Jesus shows up and a little bit of spit, a little bit of mud, a little bit of washing. And now this man sings like we do. I once was blind, but now I see. And on one day in Judea, Jesus takes off to, to heal his friend, knowing that when he heads into Judea, this will be the end. He's entering into Judea and then into Jerusalem, and he is giving his life for us. And when he enters into Jerusalem on that Monday, on that Sunday, and, the, and they begin to wave the palm branches and celebrate his name, they talk about him as king. But when they turn on him and they crucify him, and they kill him. They take his body down. And they place it in a tomb to rot away. They roll a stone in front of it. And they tell everyone, time to go home. Show's over. That's all, folks. Checkmate. But you and I know, come Sunday, the king still has one more move. And so let's pray together. I want to give you a moment. Where do you need a miracle? Where do you need to just say to the Lord, here's what we're going through. I don't want to tell you what to do. I just want to tell you what we're going through. And I want to invite you in. Where do you need to give yourself some perspective and say, it is well with my soul? Why can you believe? Why can you live with miraculous faith? We see it here. Every step of the way, he's been showing us we can trust him. So where do you need his work? Where do you need a miracle? 
Do you need this morning to confess, Jesus, today I confess my belief in you, or I have not been believing very well. But today I want to restore that. Where do you need a miracle? Let's take a second and then we'll close with these final songs.